Greetings, friends of the great beyond. This is your ghost, I mean host, ready to take you behind the veil of terror and leftist critique. Welcome to the Horror Vanguard. Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Horror Vanguard. My name is John. I am joined, as always, by uh, my American friend who I trap with coffee and dark magic <laughs> to be a podcaster forever. Uh, and we have another guest joining the Horror yes. Vanguard. And we are so, so excited. So excited. Nicole so cool. Cliff. Nicole Cliff has swung by to talk with us today. How are you, Nicole? I'm wonderful. I'm. I was very flattered to be asked to do this. You know, can I, I can I tell just uh, there's a quick story please. I feel I should mention. When I first emailed you, I did the. I am a painfully British man, so I did. <laughs> I did the thing that lots of British people do, where we do like the self-deprecation and go, "You you are way too busy and important to do this." But <laughs> would, wouldn't it? Wouldn't it be lovely if you did? And my your response was, "I am very busy, but if you pick this film." I'll do it. <laughs> I I very much respect that. <laughs> Nothing could make me too busy to talk about a dark song. Um, before we get to the film, and maybe for the listeners who have not uh, come across you or encountered your work before, uh, could you maybe? I know, right? The very idea. Could you? Could you? Would you like to sort of introduce yourself and and say hello and tell people a little about a little bit about who you are and what you do? Absolutely. Uh, so as mentioned, my name is Nicole Cliff. Um, I am Canadian, but I live in Utah, which is a very different place. Um, <laughs> I was uh, the co-founder of The Toast, which was a very niche sort of queer women's librarian humor, feminist adjacent uh, cult website, which was extremely popular for about three years. And then we decided to move on to other projects. Um, I'm currently uh, one of the parenting columnists uh, for Slate. I have three children. Um, my first celebrity profile drops, I think, next week. I'm really excited, but I can't tell you who it's about yet. <laughs> oh. Uh, oh, the hype well, is real, though. When is this one going to go up? Oh, th uh, th this will be up in July. Oh, it's Alanis Morissette. I what? Got to do Alanis what? Morissette. What? Oh, get out. That's too cool. I know. No, I, <laughs> <laughs> I, it's, it's now in the fa legal and fact checking have the profile in their hands now. And I'm just so excited for the world to get to see it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Exciting. So interesting and delightful. Um, I am also a Christian. Um, uh, I have been a Christian for about, I, uh, oh gosh, is it three years or four years? I think three years now, um, of the, uh, progressive type. Um, and let's see what else, um, that I have a very, uh, active Twitter presence and I would say I am an online personality. First and foremost, I think that's if, if you if I had to elevator pitch me um, as who I was, I am a, I, I am an online personality of note. We, we are all terminally online in the digital age. Um, oh, yes. we, we, we all suffer from it. We are all now posters. That is what we do. 
Uh, I feel I should also bring up that you also have a newsletter through Substack, which is very good. I'm glad you like it. I love doing it. Uh, it is. It was one of the reasons that you, your use of it is one of the reasons that I started mine. Um, so uh, thank you very much, basically, for uh, talking about how it works and also putting out such really, really fun content. No, and I think that uh, also I talk about horror so much in the yes. newsletter because I'm a. It's my favorite genre. Um, I will go see Marvel Cinematic Universe movies in the theater. Um, and the only other movies I will watch are like action thrillers from the 90s, the John Wick movies. And then I watch probably two horror movies a day while I work. I mean, that, that's, that sounds amazing. <laughs> like, who wouldn't want to live like that? Um, I just have a, a divot in my bed and my dog sits next to me and we watch horror movies. And that's what we do. That is the dream life. Uh, yeah, basically, Ash and I are now like both consumed with envy about <laughs> about that as a uh, as a lifestyle. Um, Actually, correct, yes. <laughs> but one of the what before we jump into the film that you have chosen for us today, uh, given given uh, your writing on faith, that you're a person of faith, you're a Christian. Uh, I think maybe it would be worth talking about how you think those two things being such a big horror fan and being a christian interact uh and what you think the kind of role of religion in horror is absolutely um well you know uh christianity is quite horrific <laughs> you know, not wrong yeah uh, no it's quite horrific uh it's extremely goth um uh, and uh there's you know I think that I was, uh, my mother is Catholic mm -hmm. and, uh, there's a reason, you know, that, uh, when we talk about how contemporary Christianity is resistant to horror, a lot of that is because contemporary, uh, Christianity is, is very sort of Protestant evangelical. Mm -hmm. Um, whereas of course, like all of the great possession demonic movies are Catholic. Yeah, unquestionably, unquestionably, unquestionably. And I think that, you know, as uh, someone from an Irish Catholic background, right, we've mm -hmm. carried uh, so much of the uh, the Irish like uh, mystic tradition has uh, has continued to seep through like the uh, there are all sorts of strange witchy things that my mother and I still do, um, even though I'm a Protestant that are so deeply encoded in Catholicism in some ways, uh, in ways that the church would not approve of in any way, shape or form. You know, there's a lot of, uh, you know, you enter and you, know, you buy a new house, you bury a statue of St. Christopher, mm. you know, mm -hmm. um, you put holy water, you know, over the mantle. Like it's, you cross yourself when you hear an ambulance. There's just there, the, the elements, the elements of horror are just uh, so deeply Catholic to me. Whereas, whereas any form of interaction with the demonic as a, a source of entertainment, you know, within you know my own religion, is considered incredibly, incredibly ill-advised. Um, yeah, and yeah, also yeah. profane, I think. 
Um, that's really interesting, especially because if you look at the history of horror in horror writing, particularly when it started back in the late 18th century, it was staunchly anti-Catholic. Yes. Uh, yeah. So anti-Catholic. Oh like, yeah. <laughs> you pick up a horror novel from like 1790, and it's like, uh, oh, they're the the papists are coming for you. Hide your children. They're coming for you. <laughs> yeah. I, I wonder. I wonder why all the decrepit Gothic uh, structures were were in Italy during that time. Hmm. <laughs> or the or the oh. south of Spain. Or... Oh yeah. <laughs> I think of you know the monk. Like the uh, mm-hmm. the monk is is such a, a great example of it. People have always known about the inherent creepiness of Catholicism. Yep. Um, uh, uh, the, the monk they is an to, amazing book. The monk it's is just an, an incredible amazing book. I read it in. Um, let's see, what was this? I think someone jammed it into a wonderful seminar I took called uh, I think Travel Literatures of the 18th Century. Even though no one goes anywhere. <laughs> um, <laughs> just because it's such a phenomenal novel uh and so at university we 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 got to do the mug and it's it's utterly fabulous um but uh no i do not find my enjoyment of horror uh to be in any way an impediment to to you know my faith or my walk with christ um i i do find that since becoming religious i am more concerned about ghosts um, and demons, because as someone who's, you know, been a staunch atheist, you know, throughout their life, um, I had never been concerned about ghosts or demons Mm -hmm. before. Mm -hmm. And now I am perturbed because it's like, if this one completely nutso thing is real, you know, God, his son, the Holy spirit, what if some of these other nutso things are real? So, you know, I've become a person who now like I would not I would not want a Ouija board in my home right like I don't think that anything is going to come from it but I wouldn't want it in my house mm. um, you know um... I, I, I tweet a lot about the you know if I were I had a whole thread uh, earlier this week you may or may not have seen where I was just making it very clear what I want in an exorcism situation should it happen. Yeah, I, I did see this. I did see this. <laughs> uh, so first of all, you know, I don't want, like, God bless them. I love mainline Presbyterianism, but they're not going to cut the mustard. Like, if there's a demon inside me, I want an no. old Catholic priest and a young yep. Catholic priest. <laughs> um, oh. And I want someone to constantly reassure me it's not my fault and that they know I don't mean to be spider walking and swearing at them and possibly <laughs> vomiting. You know, I want someone to be sort of like patting my head and being like, we know you're in there. It's okay. So that could but- be the Presbyterian job. That could be the Presbyterian job. And then you get like Father Marin and, and Father Karras in to take care of business. Oh, absolutely. And yeah, I feel that, that so is- strongly that the parts of me that are Canadian would break through into like, I'm so sorry I said that about your mother. You know, I'm sure your mother was not doing that at this moment in hell. Uh, Hollywood, if you're listening, Canadian Exorcist remake when? Bring it on. Yeah, I find that I find that actually really, really heartening because, you know, I, I describe myself as a recovering new atheist. Oh, and good for you. That's a great thing to recover from. Atheism is yeah. fantastic. Uh, yeah, new atheism uh, is a disaster. 
Yeah, it's it's ab- absolute trash, and um, I, you know, I I find your 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 phrasing that like you're you know becoming more concerned with ghosts and demons like really heartwarming because I've gone through that same kind of like 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 oh okay like all, all of this is legitimate now and and these are these are things I have to be concerned with but I've had like the inverse reaction where it's like wait this 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 stuff does something this this stuff works like send me some Ouija boards man. <laughs> Uh, don't turn don't do that don't turn out that way you'll (laughs) don't don't dice with death i buy too much cursed jewelry this is something that was known on twitter that that would be a bridge too far for me i have a deep appreciation for nicole's taste in deeply cursed jewelry (laughs) no and some of it is so obviously cursed i've only had one item cursed so which was so clearly cursed that i had to get rid of it um, mostly it's just creepy looking, you know, uh, Victorian morning lockets and, you know, uh, earrings with eyes in them and things like that. Right. Uh, <laughs> but the, the famous, if you follow me incident was the orb, uh, which I, think uh, I, I can take a few minutes to, to tell people about the orb. Oh, you, please do. Please, please tell people about the orb. I we love this story. <laughs> okay. So essentially I, uh, I'm a fancy person. Um, mm-hmm. I married uh, a wealthy man, and so I'm a fancy person. Um, and I like to spend a certain amount of my time buying uh, via consignment um, jewelry, um, you know, like cocktail rings in particular, earrings more recently, bracelets. Um, and these are almost, you don't know where they came from. Um, it's almost always uh, rich ladies getting a divorce who need to liquidate some assets. Mm -hmm. So you can get tremendous deals. But I bought this uh, Dior bracelet, um, which uh, was this large red stone, like in a gold bracelet, but a huge red stone. Um, And the minute it came into my possession, my life just went to shit. So I had um, an unexplained grand mal seizure in my kitchen in front of my mother. I'm fine now. Um, my, I, I did something permanent to a muscle in my left arm, so I can't sleep on that side anymore. But apart from that, I'm fine. Um, you should know that uh, despite the fact it was clearly the orb, um, something like one in four, one in five people have one, exactly one inexplicable grand mal seizure in their life. So just prepare in case that's you. Um, but that wasn't great, um, which I did not immediately associate with the orb um but then uh we lost all water and power to the house uh for over 48 hours um you know uh my child had some sort of gruesome injury um it 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 was not pleasant um and i began making jokes about how the orb kind of changed color sometimes which it clearly did like it was just very obvious um and so i was tweeting about it you know kind of jokingly kind of seriously and what I loved was all of my Catholic friends DM'd me very seriously <laughs> with suggestions for what to do about it. That is amazing. Which I really appreciate, especially my, my more trad Catholic friends, you know, the mm. ones who go to Latin masses and mm. things like that. Um, so I brought it with me to New York uh, because I wanted it out of my house. Um, Smart. I was coming to New York. Good move. I paid four hundred dollars for it. I wasn't going to throw it into the Hudson. You mm. know, like I'm not doing that. Classic and, horror uh, movie setup. Classic, <laughs> classic horror movie setup. Um, 
And I tried to find out about it online, you know, because Dior doesn't make a ton of one-off jewelry pieces. Um, it exists nowhere online. There's, there's no trace of Dior having made this bracelet. Like it was just, it was just dropped from the sky onto this consignment site. And I tried to contact the seller and I couldn't. Um, <laughs> this, but at any rate, I came to New York. I came to New York. Um, and, uh, of course, everyone wanted to see it and touch it. And my friend Anna, who's Russian Jewish and the most superstitious woman who's ever lived, like she's one of my dearest, dearest friends, but, you know, she's very superstitious. Um, and she thought it was funny and she held it up to her head and we took a cute picture of it, like, on her head. And the next day she developed a migraine so bad she couldn't work for three oh, days. No. Oh, no. And she was like, you have to get rid of this. And I was like, clearly it's got to go. Um, so one of my Catholic friends who lives in New York said, um, I'm going to bring you some holy water from Lourdes. And I think that that would be a good idea. I had previously encircled the orb in salt. And you can cut any of this you need to cut because you have to get the podcast in at a certain time. But <laughs> I. Oh, no, this, this is gold. This is all staying in. This is all staying in. <laughs> I had tried a salt circle. You know, I wasn't going to sage my house because that's culturally appropriative. Um, mm -hmm. But Irish people are allowed to circle things with salt. I did not realize that that's, you know, similar to a dark song, right? Mm -hmm. It's it's a protective force while it's still surrounded by the salt. Yeah. So, you know, it's not like you dip it. You, it's, I had it on my kitchen table. I surrounded it with sea salt. And then, you know, waited a day. I'm like, that's not how it works. It needs to be surrounded by salt forever for this to be, you know, not cursed. Um, but I was sitting in the lobby at the Carlisle Hotel, which is uh, my home when I'm in New York. And because I'm a very chatty person and a very Canadian person, as previously stated, all of the men and women who worked at the hotel, like, knew about the orb within an hour. <laughs> so, like, um... None of the elevator guys would touch it. Uh. Um, you know, they were mostly Catholic and extremely concerned about the orb. Um, and uh, another Catholic friend of mine said, look, here's the deal. The Franciscans on 34th will take it. They, you know, they'll take a demonic object and deal with it. Um, and I said, well, I have a lot of friends who want it, which is insane to me. Like, clearly it's, it's a, a, a dark and demonic piece of jewelry. Um, uh, but I should have in retrospect have indeed, I don't know how that would have worked. Like I could have gone down to the Franciscans and just, you know, handed them this bracelet and said, this is evil, <laughs> you know, like put this in your, you know, what, Lorraine and Ed Warren room, you know, like I don't know what they do. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, but instead, I gave it to my friend Lewis um, because it fit him really well and he liked it. Um, and within a month, he was laid off uh, from his job. Um, he kept it. So he still got it. Um, it seems to be calmer with him. I don't know. Uh, but it definitely has not not ruined his life. Um, so that's uh, the story of the orb. Um, since then, I have tried not to purchase anything obviously cursed. I, you know, <laughs> nothing. Well, wise, wise advice. Yes. Uh, well, you know, as as a um, 
as a as someone who describes himself quite regularly as a gothic Marxist, none of this surprises me. This is not a shock to to any any kind of good left wing analysis that the the jewelry and assets of of the upper classes that have kind of circled down to us are of course deeply cursed. All of it. All of it yes! is cursed. <laughs> all of it is cursed. All of it is cursed. Of our alienation from our labor. Uh, and yeah, exactly. The, the the blood and exploitation that goes into creating it it's it's it would be weird if it was not cursed um. imagine, imagine like a like a blood diamond not carrying some sort of of, of this yeah wrong just rock. wrong <laughs> now 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 i'm just imagining now i'm just imagining some like aspiring evil wizard trying to make a cursed bracelet and failing all the time and accidentally making nothing but good luck charms <laughs> Um, I just, just, I just useless, want to take a, useless good luck charms. Right. I just want to take a moment and and send nothing but good wishes to your friend Lewis. I hope right. I hope they are okay. Um, I hope they have found a way to contain the orb and that it will not uh, exert any more malevolent in influence in the world. Um, they have wanted to be with a man. You know, I can't I can't say that that's not the case. Um, maybe it wanted to be with a man. It certainly did, you know, result in a layoff. I'm pretty convinced of it. Um, which we didn't, you know, Lewis and I, as soon as he got laid off, everyone was like, was it the orb on social media? Because the orb has a lot of popularity on social media. And Lewis and I would be like, guys, that's such a dick thing to say to someone who's just been laid off. Yeah. Like, can we take a job. minute before we make this into, you know, a fun story about the cursed bracelet? There is one thing that I really like about this story, which is that all of your friends who immediately who said, uh, Nicole, this is this is cursed. This is clearly malevolent. Let me touch it. Yes. <laughs> I I really like what that says about people. <laughs> no, about people and, you know, perhaps the draw of uh, demonic objects. I don't this, know. This this brings up a really a really good question that you kind of touched upon a little bit earlier um which is that you you said uh, a little while ago that sort of mainstream evangelical protestant christianity is very suspicious of horror like resistant yeah. in fact to horror um as a form uh, and uh, ash before we start recording to point out that this is not necessarily the case uh historically speaking historically speaking uh, you know, lots of Christian culture, lots of Christian art has been well aware that evil is a thing, that uh, there are non-material forces at work in the world. Um, so what, what, what is it, do you think, that has kind of happened in kind of contemporary Protestant Christianity that has made it so uh, moralistic about horror? Well, it's interesting. And I would first like to say that I have still never seen, you know, a horror movie that's scarier than when Jesus was the man with demonic possession came to Jesus and said, you know, when he asked to speak to the spirit within said, we are legion, you know, like there's nothing, uh, nothing the topped that. Yeah. The, the Bible, Bible is a, the Bible is a horror movie. Don't, it, don't, Bible, at, do not at me about this. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it's, it's chilling. Yeah. It's, it's oh, deeply, yeah. deeply chilling. Um, so I think a lot of the moralism is a, uh, the fear that people are going to, um, you know, that their children are going to go out and get stick and poke tattoos and become 
horror aficionados and get Ouija boards and do all of these things, or maybe become convinced that Catholicism is the way, because <laughs> occasionally the exorcism movies work out. Right. All right. Um, I think also because uh, contemporary horror films also frequently involve nudity, um, mm, yeah, which is good point. Just, you know, a total no-go. I'm sorry, mm -hmm. I can't figure out why my alarm keeps going off. Um, I will just keep attempting to make it to stop doing that. Perfectly um, okay. My phone is not cursed. Um, <laughs> that is good to hear. My, my phone is normal. It is not cursed. <laughs> it's normal. It is an iPhone. It's, it's not very an straightforward. Phone. No, but uh, there's this is uh, something which uh, I liked about a dark song. So, of course, the director is Catholic mm -hmm. um, and uh, our protagonist is Catholic, um, sort of. You know, she's she's culturally Catholic. Her sister is uh, a devout Catholic. Um, and something I talk about a lot with the difference between um, Catholics and Protestants is uh, is faith. Right. Mm. Which is that um, if you are Catholic and you go see your priest and you say, I'm having, you know, doubts about the existence of God, the Pope will be like, oh, yeah, no, there was a whole decade there where I didn't, you know, I was just showing <laughs> up and doing mass and was pretty sure it was all horseshit. Um, are you coming to mass? Like, are you taking communion? Are you going to confession? And if you say yes to those things, they are like, we don't see a problem. Like, this is not. You know, good. Give it some time. Keep doing the stuff because there's stuff you can do. It's a very ritual based sacramental religion. Um, whereas Protestants um, and I, again, I include myself among this, but uh, you, you don't ever shake a Catholic mother. You know, mm. and I wouldn't want to. My Catholic mother is wonderful. But there are things uh, within my own religion I find hilarious. Um, in this contra contrast from Catholicism, which is the because your salvation is by faith alone, right? Any yeah. any deviation from that is a top is an immediate emergency. So if you were to go to your pastor, you know, at like a, a random evangelical church and say, you know, I'm not sure today that God is real. Like they're going to have an intervention. They're going to come to your house. Like this is going to be a huge issue. Like, because this could separate you from salvation, mm. you know? Um, and I think that uh, because of this, what we believe is, can be, I, I think this is related to why uh, modern evangelical culture is so scared of horror movies. Because yeah. of, if, if belief is this completely all-consuming, powerful thing, then should someone through horror movies, you know, begin to believe, say, uh, in the benefits of worshiping Satan, this is just a much, much, much bigger deal than we could possibly imagine. Yeah, totally. Ash, what do you think? You know, I, I, find, I find it really interesting because... In in a lot of ways, contemporary, um, especially evangelical Christianity, is is just so obsessed with the most horrific content that they can possibly mine out of the Bible. Right? There's this, there's this hyper focus. Oh, oh, very revelations. Yeah, 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 yeah. There's this hyper focus on like revelations on on the the body horror of the crucifixion, on all of the wars and the genocides and the expulsions. And, and there's kind of this uh, blind eye 
uh, that, that has been turned to the the calming and peaceful elements, you know, like the, the forgiveness and the healing and the, you know, giving away free food to the needy. Like like that, that stuff gets downplayed because it doesn't get the same kind of traction. You know, like the, the, the Passion of the Christ was a blockbuster hit and it was pretty much just like what, like an hour and a half uh, torture Pure porn gore. horror movie. Yeah. Pure gore. And yeah. and and like but like, you know, if you would have made like the the passion of the loaves of bread and fish, like I don't think that that would have drawn the same flock to the uh, movie theaters. No, no, it wouldn't. Well, now, of course, what you have is uh, God's Not Dead 3, where Kevin Sorbo uh, <laughs> oh, yeah. t- t- tells people they're going to hell because they read Nietzsche once, uh, which you love to see it. It's so good. <laughs> or the, or the who, who did who did Noah? I'm blanking on the director's name. Oh, Aronofsky. Aronof- Ar- oh, yes, that was an Aronofsky film. I knew it. <laughs> yes. But it had like uh, awesome rock monsters and like <laughs> like it was like a tra- Transformers, but for the Bible. Uh, I don't, you may not know Nicole, but um, the official uh, nemesis of the Horror Vanguard podcast <laughs> is Darren Aronofsky. Um, <gasps> well, after we are not officially recording, I have a great Darren Aronofsky story to tell you, which I can't oh. tell you on the podcast. But it's we, reinforce, we have off-air excitement. <laughs> it is going so to excited. reinforce your belief. <laughs> I am so glad you agreed to come on the show. <laughs> <laughs> No, I'm enjoying myself a great deal. We should do this again about another movie now that I know you're so much fun. Yes, yes. Um, totally. Uh, I, I just think that a lot of like Protestant evangelicalism uh, had looked at kind of contemporary culture and went, what if we did that uh, and it was worse in literally every way imaginable uh, and just devoid of any kind of... Because there is no way that a dark song, which we'll get onto in just a second, which I actually found a deeply moving and and extremely religious experience watching oh, yeah. it. Yes. Uh, there, there is no way that like any evangelical church would go, you know what you should do this weekend before you come to church or before you come to yeah. Bible study, watch watch a dark song on Netflix because we're going to have a discussion group about it. I, I had, no I had way the same thought. I, I was like, yeah. could, could you imagine a youth pastor being like, all right, kids, like, I want to engage with the hip modern culture. Like, let's all go watch a dark song. <laughs> I, you know, I recommended it um, to all of the people of faith in my life uh, because of how religious and spiritually uplifting I found ultimately this movie to be. Oh, yeah. You know, my husband will not watch horror movies. And so I said, I I just need you to see the last 15 minutes of this movie. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Like, I literally fast forward through the bit where, like, she's going up the stairs and the demons Mm -hmm. are still grabbing at her. um, And as she steps into this room, um, and I was just like, you have to, you just have to experience this with me. It's, it's, It's incredibly important. Because I spent the entire movie, you know, worried. I didn't know anything about the director when I saw it, you know. Um, I, with all my heart, I felt for Sophia, you know, I have three children. Um, Mm -hmm. And I was so concerned the entire movie that this was going to be just a waste, Mm -hmm. you know, just like a a colossal, colossal waste. And so instead, the fact that it has, I mean, certainly an unsettling ending, but possibly the happiest ending in any horror movie of my recollection I'll, I'll agree with that. Yeah, it's 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 extraordinary. It's absolutely extraordinary. With that in mind, then, uh, as is usual for the horror vanguard, we 
we always start with a very spoiler-heavy plot recap to kind of contextualize the work that we're talking about. Um, done in his indomitable style. Uh, Ash always always is now. It's now a tradition. People now expect this. Ash. So Ash, for take people who have not seen a dark song, take it away. <laughs> Uh, yes, uh, and, and as always, uh, spoilers ahead, but what are you doing watching an in-depth film criticism movie? If you are spoiler-reverse, go watch the <laughs> film. Have you ever wanted to escape from the pangs and agonies of everyday life? To get away from it all in a lakeside manor in the rural hills of the UK? Have you ever wanted to bind the 12 kings and dukes of hell in order to gain knowledge and conversation <laughs> with your holy guardian angel? And 2016's A Dark Song is the movie for you. We join Sophia, our protagonist, as she's out for revenge and has turned to Joseph Solomon, an expert occultist, to perform one of the occult's most complicated and dangerous ritual, rituals, the Abramalin. The ritual demands months of grueling spiritual and physical labor, binding demons, and physical purity. We watch as Sophia grows emotionally and spiritually as the world around her becomes more haunted and the occult presence around her peaks. She finally makes contact with her guardian angel, but to an unexpected twist. Ooh. Do 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 do. Theremin noise. Amazing. Uh, as always, an incredible plot recap from Ash. Oh, absolutely. Um, what, oh, thank what you. Masterful. <laughs> masterful. So, uh, let's 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 start with kind of some big picture stuff. Um, this this is basically a film about grief. Um, yes. Which, which I think is, I think is really interesting because horror often deals with like an, an encounter with the monstrous that is like terrifying, but it's, but in a way, the kind of monstrous thing has already happened when the film starts, Correct. which, uh, which is, uh, as we find out in the course of the film, Sophia, um, has lost the, the, her child. They've been taken away. They've been, they've, there, there's this kind of at attachment which is kind of pinning her in place, even though the world is now fundamentally changed. Um, and I just want to kind of maybe think about the ways in which I'd be interested to know what you both think about the ways in which like contemporary, what we might call kind of normal capitalist day-to-day -day life is completely incapable of dealing with grief because grief is a profoundly sort of unproductive emotion. It's, it's something that sort of halts everything as anyone who's ever been through a kind of loss will know. Um, yeah, what do you both think about that as a theme for a horror film? That was something that struck me so much. I've been, I was writing about grief, uh, in a recent column. Um, actually the one that'll be up on Monday. Um, uh, a woman wrote in because a family friend had experienced a, a stillbirth. Um, mm. and she wanted to know how she could help. And I said that all the literature we have on grief is such that, the hardest part in some ways is after other people have moved forward yeah. and you are still stuck. Um, and, you know, the, the flowers stop coming. People stop calling to check on you. Mm -hmm. No one remembers. It's the dead one person's birthday. Um, and I felt that the moment in the film that captures that so perfectly is obviously Sophia's attempt to depart the home. Yeah, yeah. You know? Do you want to talk? Do you want to kind of talk a little bit about that moment? Sure. Do you want Ash to as the recapper, or I'm happy? To <laughs> oh no, no. You, 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 you take it away. It sounds like you've got a got a lead here. 
No, I just so there's a, a point in the movie where we 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 have been told by by Solomon, uh, who is brilliant and fantastic and the most real character I can possibly imagine having been placed into this movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm sure we're going to talk a lot about Solomon in a minute. Oh, yeah. um, also, the 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 the, the working classness of mm-hmm. Solomon mm-hmm. and the poshness of Sophia. I'm sure yeah. we have a lot to say about. Um, oh, yeah. But, uh, you know, once they have finished sealing off the house from the world, um, he's told her, that, you know, you, you can't leave. Um, with no indication of like what that might mean, whether that just means that the, the ritual comes to, would come to an end, she wouldn't get what she wanted. But he was very clear with her, like, once this is sealed, we cannot leave until the ritual is over. Um, and after it becomes clear that he is too medically unwell to go on, Sophia um, leaves the house after standing you know, in the doorway for a time. Um, her car won't start and just begins to walk, uh, which brings her back inexorably to the house. And I think that it's a beautiful metaphor for grief mm. that, that, that you are contained in this space, this space of grieving, while the rest of the world continues to turn. People go to work. Uh, uh, people have babies. Um, people are thinking about things that is not what you are thinking about, which is the all-consuming work of mm-hmm. grieving. Which we also, you know, grieving is work and we do not recognize it as such. Yeah, definitely. You know? Like, I think if, if you lose your child, I, I think you should get a year paid vacation from work on the government. Oh, absolutely. Because you have to do it. You have, there's no postponing it. Mm. You know, it's just going to be there. Like, you have to experience it. No one has as yet succeeded in avoiding having to do the work of grief. Ash, what do you think? Yeah, I think that's I think that's really well put. Um, you know, for for me, one of the big takeaways for grieving in this film is um, there's a line where um, Solomon, when they do, when they were starting the ritual, Solomon says, "I'm going to unshackle the house from reality." Yes. And I just oh, so Solomon has some really powerful one-liners. I absolutely mm-hmm. love them. Uh, but 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 to me, like p- part of this process is like so so the ritual they're conducting, as we mentioned earlier, is the Abermelon, and the the Abermelon takes 18 months. Right, right. This is this is a huge commitment to start and go through this process. And and like we see in the movie, it involves isolating yourself from the rest of the world and kind of going mm-hmm. into seclusion. And, you know, that that line from Mr. Solomon, where, where he's he's, you know, signaling that he's he's physically removing their space from the shared reality of the rest of the world, you know, like that, that that's a lot of the process of grief. You know, we can't we can't grieve when we're going to work every day. You know, we can't, we can't yeah. micromanage grieving and office meetings. And in, in a way, like I found, I found the message of this film, at least with this part, you know, there's a lot of messages here, but this part of the message of the film, really uplifting, you know, that, that like, like, yes, we need time, time away from, from the systems and machinery of the rest of the world to grieve, you know, not necessarily as extreme as the Abermelon, but like, you know, you, you can't, you can't grieve at your nine to five. You can't, you can't grieve while you're taking people's orders as a barista, you know, like you need to be given the kind of space and time that, that Sophia and Joseph Solomon have in the film. Yeah. I mean, and this is why, this is why I get so sort of bone shakingly mad at this kind of modern 
neoliberal discourse of resilience. Oh my it's God, like, yes. Oh, oh. Oh, you're you're depressed and, and anxious because uh, we live in the neoliberal hell world. So, have you thought about have you thought about a thirty minute session of mindfulness? Yeah, I, I was I was going to say, do you want some mindfulness, kids? <laughs> Get an app. They've got oh tons my God, of them. Yes, it'll yeah, do the trick. There's an app. There's an app for that. And and I think uh, not just this film, but I think actually that's maybe what we don't talk about this a lot as kind of horror fans. But maybe that's one of the reasons why people like horror because horror is um is is cathartic catharsis you can, yeah you you go through this kind of incredibly emotionally intense uh, uh encounter this kind of physically affecting encounter uh and one of my favorite quotes about horror is from uh roger ebert who said that a great horror movie makes you glad that you're alive you come out you come out uh -huh. of the out of the movies and you go the, the, like it seems like everything seems brighter. Whereas a bad horror movie, you'll come out and you go, uh, this is the world we live in now. Uh, what well, you'll come out and you feel, you'll feel depressed that you're still alive. Uh, you go, but a good one, you'll come out of it and you go, you know, I made it. There is, there is a kind of hope in that. Um, I, I found something, the, the amount of work that is involved, the non-capitalist work, that's involved with the ritual mm -hmm. um, to be something that even if it hadn't turned out the way it did, must have been on some level a, a grief alleviating force in itself. Oh, yeah. yeah. This is uh, it, this is why Catholics have so many fucking rituals, right? Mm -hmm. Like this is um, it's saying a rosary takes a buttload of time yeah you know um but doing these repetitive difficult you feel like you are accomplishing something even when you know uh you're completely cut off from everything and have just spent time in a mental institution mm. you know yeah um by the way i personally do not think that the movie um opens itself to the reading that Sophia is just mentally ill. Oh, not at all. Yeah. I don't think this. Um, and this has frequently been, you know, uh, an issue in horror movies. I, I hate horror movies where someone is just out of a, like a mental institution and it's not clear to them whether what they're experiencing is, is real or them being mm. crazy. I, yeah. I have a friend uh, with a schizoaffective disorder who can't watch horror movies at all yeah. for this reason, amongst yeah. other things. She's like, uh, it's hard enough for her to go about her day making sure that things are real, that yeah. the idea of introducing these images and concepts um, would be you know, utterly, utterly terrifying. We yeah, talked about this before, haven't we, Ash, on our episode about um, My Bloody Valentine, that one of the yes. one of the things that both of us really hate is that kind of lazy, um, phobic and and uh, monsterizing, to use a, a clumsy term, of people with uh, who who have to deal with mental health problems. And I think uh, we've said it before. I will say it again. People who are um, dealing with things like serious mental illnesses have uh, some of the highest rates of being victims of, of violence yes. and, ne and never yeah. perpetrators of it, uh, often at the hands of it, systemically racist and oppressive institutions like the police. Mm -hmm. um, so, 
yes, I, I would completely agree that it is a lazy and reductive reason, reading to say, oh, well, Sophia is just, it's because she's just come out of a, a psychiatric institution. I think that's, yeah, I would, I would, I would completely agree with you. Yeah, yeah, I also I completely reject that reading, you know, like that is, you know, it goes all the way back to the Gothic with the turn of the screw, you know, like it's yes. it's the most one of the most embarrassing and historic shames of like the horror and Gothic generically is that, you know, they, they constantly exploit the lives and experiences of people dealing with um, any manifestation of mental illness for like cheap spooks. This is also, you know, um, as a religious person, right, we have a long and disturbing history of mistaking mental illness for demonic possession. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You know, like uh, just uh, tremendous, tremendous amounts of it ongoing. You know, like I have friends who grew up in uh, very spiritually abusive fundamentalist homes um, who had like their parents tried to cast demons out of them, mm -hmm. you know. Um, because they were depressed or because they were bipolar. And I think that um, uh, the, it's, it's difficult as a, you know, a believing person, as someone who thinks that Christ cast demons out of someone, it's hard for me to draw the through line, right? So like, mm -hmm. okay, I believe that that happened then. What do I think now, right? I can think of, 2,000 years of people, you know, uh, forcibly tossing demons out of people who were just schizophrenic, um, mm -hmm. often resulting in their deaths, you know. Um, and uh, what, what does that mean? You know, what is, our, what is my relationship um, as, a, as a Christian to the idea of evil, you know? Um, and progressive Christians, you know, um, there's... You know, is evil simply the sensation, like, is hell just being separated from God? You know, um, is the devil just our badness? And these, uh, we're just very uncomfortable, very, very uncomfortable with the notion that um, these things might be real or not. Mm. The, the ambiguity and the and the and the the kind of power of this ritual especially is a great way of bringing that in so let's yes. let's talk about let's I, talk about um joseph my, and sophia my, okay, first, my favorite thing that the director has said by the way is that mm -hmm. he very consciously did not do or portray you know the full ritual yeah. of abermalen because he didn't want to be doing it you know, yeah. like he's he's a Catholic. He did not, in fact, wish to do this strange Kabbalistic thing um, in order to uh, invoke a spirit. Yeah, or judge. an angel like this is this is not what what he wanted. Um, but yes, I want to talk about Sophia and and Solomon for the rest of my life. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I, I like that you I like that you bring up the what, what the director said about that. I was talking with uh, John before we started recording about this that like 
there, there's kind of this un, unspoken tradition in, in occult circles that when you popularly represent a ritual, you you popularly represent it wrong or you leave bits yes. out because you don't want it getting into the, the hands of inexperienced practitioners who could harm themselves oh. or harm others by by doing it improperly. And I really appreciated that there are there are important chunks that are left out and there are there are parts that are inserted and moved around, you know, like I think it, it speaks to it to a history there, even if unintentionally that I found to be pretty awesome. Yeah, definitely. No. There's such uh, attention to it, it speaks to the as the film is in entirety uh, beautifully attached to detail. Oh yeah, you know um, the because it's all we have. We have two people in this movie, right? Um, and the the extent to which he depicts their daily lives and the repetition of them and the it's it's done so extraordinarily well so extraordinarily well that um the decision to pull back from that detail on the ritual itself adds a beautiful mystery to the movie which might not be there otherwise like i think it it's a it's a far scarier movie in that we don't know everything that sophia and solomon have had to do to get to this point yeah, we see like little glimpses. Uh, you know, there's the moment with the toadstool. There's mm. there's uh, the blood sacrifices. There's the the constant kind of um, almost sort of liturgical practice of of symbols and arcane uh, incantations. And mm-hmm. uh, there's that wonderful line where she asks him, "Is it going to be horrible?" Yes. <laughs> oh, it's the best. Uh, and he just goes, yes, yeah, this is going to be awful. And none of the things which are depicted ever feel sort of, it would be very easy to do this as a kind of cheap ex- exploitation uh, yes. flick. I kept expecting uh, that, too. I, I kept expecting, I like... I for the turn. I went yeah, for I, the I, turn I, the whole yeah. movie. I kept waiting for, like, a, a big CGI, horned, fiery, bloody, gory, demon-y thing to, like, rip up the floorboards and be like, Sophia, your time has come. Like, some, some garbage like that, you know? Yeah. yeah, but but like it, even the things like you know the the ritualistic sex or the or the mm-hmm. or the or the purging, none of it is ever done in a way that feels exploitative. If it just feels uh, deeply sad and incredibly bleak, um, and as you say, Nicole, it keeps this it keeps this kind of air of mystery, uh, which runs through the relationship between the two of them. Right, you're never quite certain of who stands where. In this, right in the power in this, dynamic. In this power oh, dynamic. Yeah. Oh God, no! It's it's as, as you said. It's very kinky. Um, yeah. It's very very uh, much about power exchange. Mm-hmm. Um, it's uh, uh, he is determined not to have. How many times in the film does he call her a stupid little posh girl? Yeah, yeah. at least three by my count. It, it's a constant refrain, and yeah. the way that he needs to to put her in her place by despite the fact you know obviously you know she attempts to say i'm paying you a tremendous amount of money for this etc etc um and whereas in fact you know he's like you're going to do the cooking and the cleaning Mm -hmm. you know like the that you will be doing the labor of of my daily life and your your money only takes you so far as well yes your money got me into the house and i carved it off from reality and now you just have to fucking do what I tell you to do. Um, yeah. And Sophia being Sophia pushes back on that so much. Mm-hmm. 
you know, I do not think that it's very clear that this is a woman who has never done anything she's been told to do in her life. Yeah. Oh, definitely. And especially in terms of like, like, I guess, quote unquote, menial labor and domestic labor. Absolutely. You know, like, like, I think it's, it's safe to assume that somewhere in the background, there's like a maid, you know? Yeah, there's a cleaner. There's a meal prep company. Yeah. Uh, I mean, she hands over a genuinely, ridiculously large stack to the um, letting oh, agent. Oh, huge! Oh, yeah, huge, yeah. This huge stack of fifties, and that um, was just just hush money. That wasn't even the house. That was yep. that was just to buy privacy. But and I, the, I think the it all money is important. You know, uh, a it's all she has, right? Mm-hmm. Like this is a, a an affluent woman who has taken and liquidated. Everything she everything. owns, yeah. everything, yeah. Um, to do this, and how little Solomon is impressed by that, yeah. because he has done this before. And oh, that perfect! I love that so much. Better. Yeah. When he said, you know, he'd uh, done it. What is it? He's done it three times. Mm-hmm. Twice it didn't work. Once it did. Like yeah. the like, what a fantastic line. And that he just he just puts that out there because, you know, he's not, you know, waving a tin cup on the street. Like, mm. And she tries too to be like, well, you get your thing. Um, but he's done this ritual. He knows that by, by the time you get the thing, you're a very different person than you were when you yeah. started the ritual. Yeah, absolutely. And it's and it's proof. Right. There's this kind of logic that if you have enough money, you don't really have a problem. Like, Absolutely. All you need to do is throw enough money at something, and mm-hmm. and the world, because of its, uh, because you know, Marx talks about the kind of occult power of money, which I really love as this thing that can it has it has uh, magical efficacy. It can do anything. But Sophia constantly keeps going. Well, I'm I'm paying for you, and he goes, Well, that that's irrelevant here. We're outside of that realm in which all of your money is going to solve all of your problems because you actually need me because I have something which exists outside of the realm of the economic, which is this weird esoteric ability to give you what you really want. No, this is uh, something. So I was born um, very working class uh, and now very wealthy. And it's the degree to which money can fix anything um, is almost a hundred percent true. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. it, it truly, truly is. And this is why, um, the things that rich people freak out about the most, um, are their children because, uh, the loss of their children can happen in a tragic accident that they cannot control. Um, they cannot get the child back. You know, and the other being death, which is why all of the Silicon Valley guys have the the blood boys, you know, (laughs) literally the blood of the young, you know, Um, they're they're taking whatever weird like powdered supplements we currently believe will get us to the death is the only thing that the truly rich fear. Mm -hmm. Whereas people who are not immensely wealthy have thousands of concerns and fears. Rich only death because everything else can be fixed with money. I have to be careful. I have to be careful with friends. You know, I, I'll be talking to a friend who's going through a crisis, and I'll be like, "I'm going to send you a thousand dollars," and usually that's that that will fix the problem. But I have, you know, like going to that as a solution as opposed to 
tell me how this is making you feel, right? Like, mm. and will adding money to this situation actually help? Or will it make you feel more useless? You know, will it make you feel demeaned or patronized in some way? And uh, I see that in, in Solomon's absolute disinterest in, in having this brought up whatsoever. Yeah, and I, th I think that um, that also really speaks to like like some of the conceptual limitations of like I guess quote unquote capitalist mindset, right? Like, you know, like like Sophia's problem isn't that you know she's she's got student loan debt or she she's been laid off she's or she's unemployed. Secure. Yeah. 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 It's it's not she she it's not a material need. It's not a financial need that she's for want of. She's got this grievous emotional hole in her soul, and that's that you can't pour money into that void. Absolutely. I think I think that that notion of I think we should I want to I think we could talk about Sophia and and Mr Solomon for so long. Um, but yes. Ash, maybe, <laughs> maybe maybe actually both of you maybe you can kind of flesh out that um, that power. I do dynamic. want to talk about the kink the kink yes. element. Going yes. I, I think we it. all want to. Um, <laughs> Who doesn't? <laughs> I think we all want to which is just this like delicious dance of power exchange mm -hmm. we see oh, yeah. going on, um, which is both consensual and non-consensual mm -hmm. at points. Like um, the, the instances where it pushes into non-consensuality, it, it becomes this, you have consented to everything yeah. when we started this process, right? Like this is this is consensual non-consent. Yeah, I was, was going to say this is the most extreme. We're one of the most extreme forms of BDSM. They're they're engaged in consensual non-consent. Mm -hmm. No, yeah. and it's one of the most extreme versions I've seen on film. Oh yeah, yeah. And certainly in a horror film, um, it's it's very very new. It's very interesting. Um, I you know I had some friends who bristled greatly um, about the the ritual sex moment right mm. when he does this uh thing to sophia um and for them they were just like okay you know solomon is doing this completely unacceptable thing which is mm. not part of the ritual and they write him off right as a person of sort of uh worth or interest or um you know uh, uh anyone with a, a claim to, to goodness he gets hashtag like, oh, canceled no. like that 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 scene is deeply demeaning to solomon like mm -hmm. they are they are both bottoming out pretty hard in that scene yeah you know like she feels gross because you know she put on makeup and bent over mm -hmm. um and uh had fixed her hair what it, it, it's an incredible scene in and of itself um and uh but for solomon you know it's not a victory it's not a gotcha. It's this like pathetic thing he needs to do. And then she has her very, very minor, yet also very sexual vengeance on him. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah. It's, it's a classic. Music. And it's it's glorious. It's absolutely glorious. And then their relationship ends in this... Um... I, I, yeah, I'm, I'm fascinated by their relationship because there is his injury and what, oh, that, that reminds me, there's that amazing thing of like causation. Everything, everything has a cause. Mm -hmm. And yes. she insists, and she insists right at the beginning, I didn't cause 
this. I didn't cause that, this kind of tiny yes. moment which happens. And until you get to the very end and you realize, actually, you know, there was this long chain and that that uh, moment of the, the this what we can kind of call the sex scene is uh, absolutely a kind of causative moment for everything that follows afterwards and everything that ha that happens to Solomon, especially. Mm -hmm. And Solomon's complete acceptance, because Solomon, you know, his acceptance of this knife wound. He's not mad at Sophia for a minute about mm -hmm. it. Yeah. Like Sophia has just, you know, really stabbed the shit out of him, you know, somewhat intentionally, somewhat not. And immediately he's like, oh, this must be my price. Yeah. You know, like that's it's not about his relationship with Sophia at that point. It's as though he's been waiting, you know, yeah. waiting for the price for him to kick in. Mm -hmm. that that he has to give up something too for this ritual whereas for her it was everything she had for him it's this this physical horrible wound which we i mean if man if if you want to make sure that you do proper wound care going forward watch this <laughs> damn movie uh, i've never been so careful in my life with cuts you know it, I'm like, it turns I'm it turns out, out. <laughs> just pouring whiskey over it is not going to be enough everybody like no you... that, is, that is not good field triage <laughs> medical attention unless you're in a house cut off from the universe in which case that's true you know you yeah. do what you got to do they, they are just... a little strapped at that point <laughs> yeah um the uh, uh first of all i don't understand why everyone in the world didn't review this film um slash give it five stars Mm -hmm. And I think it might have been the New York Times who liked it, but it was like the, the bad special effects. Oh, boo. and I'm like, fucking eat me out. What right? are you talking about? What like, bad like, special effects? What bad special effects? Are we first of all, are we talking about the unbelievably beautiful gold specks that fall from the ceiling right? that show you that something is happening? Is it like the demons who uh are in a very dark room, like taking her finger. Like what, <laughs> what are the bad special effects? Is the bad special effect the beautiful, the only third character in the movie who arrives mm -hmm. at the end? Like, show me. I just want yeah. to be like, fucking show me the bad special effect, which I think is their way of being like, this is a more of an art film. Or mm -hmm. what have you. It's 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 some way of finding a way to criticize the movie that the movie doesn't deserve. Uh, I'm yeah, sure this... there are critiques to be made of the movie, but that's uh, as that's a stupid one. Yeah, and I think I think it's it's like it's such this devotion to like okay, like what are special effects today? You want photorealism and and Michael Bay levels of spectacle. Right. And, and this film is going for something so much with so much more emotional gravity and such a slow burn with so much subtle effects. And like our, our angel at the end isn't uh. isn't like rendered in immaculate photorealistic blah, blah, blah. It, it has this ethereal glow. It's meant to be it's you know, it's, it's the horrific light of dawn. You know, it's it's simultaneously beautiful and deeply terrifying. The way the floor rumbles. Yeah. The inaudible uh. speech. Mm -hmm. You know, I watch everything with subtitles on 
Um, and uh, as the uh, angel is is talking, um, the subtitle is inaudible speech. Um, yep. <laughs> I love that. Yes. Well, and, it would but be. It's at an infrasonic level. So the entire mm-hmm. house shakes as the, the angel is speaking. And Sophia can hear him clearly. Yes. You know, I love that so much. I love it so much. Yeah, that, it's, that, it's not that, it's not for us. That's not our guardian angel. No, no. Before we He's get to the end, her. before we get to the end, um, there, I think we should talk a little bit more about the ritual. And Ash, this is probably something that you know you I, well it's not probably it is something you know a lot more about than me um maybe can you kind of context contextualize the rights because i think we've sort of glossed over quite a lot of it and maybe it'd be good to kind of get into the get into the spooky magic of it and let's if you can too i mean now i'm just demanding things from you like you're a jukebox um, <laughs> obviously like the most famous attempt to do uh the abramelin yes um not on film was uh i'm Crowley. dropping the name yes and yeah. uh yeah, and crowley's I, epic just, fail yes please <laughs> talk about that a little bit because i think people would find that fascinating and yeah, I, myself would find it fascinating to discuss I, I think it has a lot of parallels with the film too so it's, i think it's a great jumping off point well so uh the ritual in question is that uh abramelin and it's attributed to um, a uh, rabbi from the 1300s named Rabbi uh, Yaakov Molin, if I'm pronouncing his name correctly, I hope. But like a lot of like a lot of the, uh, the ritual occult, it's attributed to things uh, that, that are that are very distant in the past. But the earliest record we have of them is like 16, 17 and 1800s, which is the case for the Abermelon. It doesn't pop up anywhere until the 1700s where people start claiming it's from the 1300s or earlier. The uh, ritual itself was translated into German and French. The French translation uh, is missing an entire book. So so there's a lot of talk about it. Oh, it only takes six months or you can do it in three. And a lot of that's based off of the French translation that's missing an entire section, whereas the German translation is full and complete and it has the full 18th month, 18th month long ritual. Uh, and this is this is where this is where we get to a uh, friend of the podcast, Alistair Crowley. <laughs> Um, uh, a, a f- official friend of the pod. Official, yeah, our, our largest Patreon supporter. We want to thank you, uh, uh, Alistair, for your continued support. <laughs> but um, yeah, so so infamously, probably uh, uh, second to this movie, the most infamous kind of depiction and presentation of the Abermelon is Crowley's attempt. And it mirrors the movie in interesting ways. Crowley uh, uh, bought a manor home on the shore of Loch Ness, uh, Bolskin, Bolskin Manor. Uh, to to conduct this ritual and it mirrors a lot the uh, rural UK manor that Sophia purchases. It's lakeside. It's kind of rickety. It's old. It's opulent. Uh, Crowley uh, infamously failed and he quit halfway through and he quit to uh, go help a friend organizing with the Order of the Golden Dawn in Paris. But uh, uh, it's it's really the infamous side effect of Crowley abandoning the Abermelon halfway through is that uh, Bolskin became deeply cursed after that. There are like countless folk stories of ghosts, demons, people going mad, people, normal people walking onto the property and then turning into raving murderers, people, people going to sightsee and then just vanishing. And then, and I think it was 2015, half of Bolskin just bursts into flame and burns to the ground. You know, so so it's it's kind of attributed to Crowley uh, disrespecting the magic behind the Abermelon and quitting the ritual that Bolskin has been kind of consumed into this etheric darkness. And I think that that echoes the movie a lot, right? Because, you know, when Sophia quits 
and she comes back, uh, her her lakeside manor home has also been consumed by these dark forces, right? And not just the demons everywhere, but the house is now like it's filthy and there's vomit on the floor and there's like these like bloody kind of like filthy, you know, hand marks all over the walls. Yeah. Mm. So because this is the thing, like she comes back in the final the final, I think, what, 10, 15 minutes or so. This is where this is where everything starts to change because there is this uh, there is a kind of demonic encounter. There is this honestly excruciatingly tense scene involving Sophia's little finger and hands holding yeah. her in place, and it's it's phenomenally well lit. Like a good horror movie should always know how to use light, um, and it makes it makes on no budget at all it makes these demons seem both very mundane and real and incredibly frightening Mm -hmm. oh they're horrifying yeah uh and then we come but this is the thing that's interesting because ultimately there's a success at the end and she encounters her guardian angel um but this leads on to the to the uh to the very end and perhaps the kind of I don't know, maybe most contentious point, because all throughout uh, Sophia says that actually what she, what she wants is she wants revenge and she wants revenge on the people who uh, ended up killing her child in another occult mm-hmm. ritual. I'm sure, uh, by the way, we all experienced the same moment the first time we watched the movie where we were suddenly like, oh, my God, is this is this twist going to occur that Solomon was one of these people? Yes. You know? Oh, yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. Yep. I had that moment for sure. Um, and they don't dwell on it at all. It's just a moment. I'm sure it's an intentional moment to like leave that open to us for a second. Mm-hmm. Um, but the more we know Solomon, of course, that, that's not his occult. You know, mm-hmm. that's not how Solomon plays. Yeah, and I really like that juxtaposition between like the the like satanic panic uh, teenager scare of of what took the life of of her son. Like this very like. You know, what I like what's depicted in the media is the occult and then uh, Joseph Solomon's occult, which is something principled and practiced and historic with with like legitimate boundaries and concerns. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And and because he says that, doesn't he? He says, oh, a teenager's messing yeah. about. Yeah. Right. Um, but and there's this there's this really creepy moment where she, where she hears um, a child's voice on the other side of a door. Oh god! Oh yeah. Oh, Which? Oh my fuck! Oh, it's so upset. As a mother, as a mother, mm-hmm. as people, as mothers must start everything. Um, <laughs> speaking as a mother, the fact that she gains comfort from having this conversation with this thing she clearly knows is just a demon trying to upset her. Yeah. But that it is still comforting, and that she just doesn't, you know, put a blanket over her head and block it out that uh it's 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 tremendous i loved that emotional complexity that she knows she's talking to a demon pretending to be her deceased child but she's still drawing something positive from it yes um she wouldn't have when she entered the house oh absolutely not there's we know so we know nothing about sophia pre-tragedy Mm-hmm. Other than that, she is smiling in that picture with her son, which is the only time we see her smile, apart from, uh, you know, one or two moments where she and Solomon have a laugh about something. 
Yeah. They're yeah. vitally important moments. There might only be the one where they laugh about something, but it's it's powerful. And I think that just ri- uh, underscores this point that if you enter into a kind of ritual practice, be that uh, religious, be that magic, be that occultic, you are irreversibly going to be changed by that. Uh, you can't be the same person that you were. Because as you pointed out, you know, perhaps when she first entered the house and they first sealed themselves inside, that would be something terrifying, something that would make her, you know, incredibly angry. But there's that. It's such a, it's such a, yeah, as you say, an emotionally complex and deeply upsetting moment. Um, and I think it's such a, a great way of underscoring just what this right has actually done to her. Yes. She's been both hardened and softened by it, mm-hmm. you know, um, and she was a hard woman going in. The, the ritual hardens her and then the intense wash suddenly we see of just like awe and vulnerability in yeah. the final scene. And that part of me when I watch that final scene, as I do frequently, Um, part of that final scene for me is we're not quite sure whether asking for forgiveness is because she's realized that's what she needs or that she is too ashamed to ask this beautiful creature for something as base as revenge. Ooh, I really like that. Yeah. I wonder about that, you know, that she's because he asks her twice, you know, what she wants. And she's just she is so changed by being in his presence. Not that angels really have gender, but he's male coded. Um, Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. That that she is so utterly transformed in that moment that in some ways she asks him for what he wants her to ask for. That beautiful little smile. Mm. Mm-hmm. I, I loved that moment. Yeah, that kind of knowing and, and genuinely happy smile. Yes. Um, and I, but then, you know, I feel like he would know if she was just doing it to impress him. Yeah. So I do think that the power to forgive is almost certainly, you know, what her great wish came to be. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, I think I, I, I agree with that reading. I think that you know, like a a large part of the ritual, you know, like, like Solomon often mentions that she has to steal herself, you know, and, and become ready. And I think what a large part of that is, is like, so Sophia is not, despite being a very hard woman and despite being very stern and expecting, she is, she is deeply insecure, you know, like, like all she wants is to, to buy her way to vengeance as quickly as possible. She, she treats Solomon as essentially like almost like a rental assassin right off the bat. Yes. Yeah. Totally. And, and, th- and through through the ritual, like she she realizes that like that can't work, you know, like the the these walls that she's built around herself to kind of guard this fundamental insecurity around this grief that she has, and they have to be destroyed and broken down. And you know, when when she like like the one scene that really the one scene that really nailed it for me was when she's in the stairwell, and and it's getting darker, and the demons are pulling her back down. And and she, she just says that she's sorry, 
you know, yes. and we don't know is she yes. is she who who is she is she apologizing to her holy guardian angel for for kind of failing the ritual? Is she apologizing to Solomon? Is she apologizing to her son, to herself, to all of them? You know, like there was such a powerful scene because there's just there's just so much to atone for in that moment. So much. And I think I think that brings us on to the topic of forgiveness. Actually, I think that's if if this is about two things. I said it's about grief, but it this is a film that's also about actually the as you as you put it nicole the work of grieving yeah the, the, the labor of grief which arrives at a point of um what you would put in religious terms as redemption mm-hmm. um yes. as the saving of something and I, i've always thought that under the kind of capitalist logic where every not not just every kind of economic interaction but every emotional one is measured in uh, what Mark Fisher called capitalist realist terms. Forgiveness is something that simply doesn't make sense uh, because if somebody, you know, it's what do you get and what do you deserve? Uh, uh, and if we buy into the lie of meritocratic capitalism, then um, the ability to both acknowledge and redeem a kind of great tragedy doesn't doesn't compute. That does not make any sense under under a kind of strictly capitalist realist framework. Yeah, totally. <laughs> I'm just taking, no, no, I'm just taking that in for a second. I think I think that's correct. Yeah, so, to kind of to, to roll off of that really quick, like like there, there's something in forgiveness that negates the kind of constant cycle of growth that capitalism demands. From the point of forgiveness, you're letting go of so much pain and so much tragedy, and you're you're releasing, you know, not not only your own suffering but the suffering of others. That is in and of itself something that is so much harder to game and convert mm. into a revenue stream. Yes, than perpetuating vengeance because if Sophia gets vengeance on the teenagers who got away with it, you know, like their their mother is now a mother who lost a child that needs to go out and seek revenge. And then then there's another mother and another mother. And like there's this cycle that eternally grows and build, builds on itself. But ending ending a violent cycle with forgiveness pulls the rug out from under that. Yes. And the the visual of, you know, when she pushes, you know, it's such an obvious metaphor. I, I hesitate to even draw attention to it. But <laughs> as she's pushing Solomon's body away, you know, yeah. the the release, the release yeah. of everything mm-hmm. occurring in that moment is, is is just so beautifully done. Oh yeah, and to 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 kind of like address Solomon's wish, you know, if, if we can assume that he was honest and unchanged throughout. You know, when when his when when he gets the water burial and we see his his body kind of drift away, like I was really hoping for something something mysterious to happen, so something that that signals a further involvement with Solomon and and these forces. And when he, when he reaches the middle of this small lake, his his body just drops like a stone. Yes. In, in a very unnatural way, it's just pulled into the darkness of of the this really. Yeah, the invisibility. Yeah, the the invisibility he, he saw it. Yeah. But it but but like so like Sophia like. You know, if if we can read uh, Sophia's forgiveness as a modality of vengeance, as like a positive vengeance, then we can read Solomon's kind of becoming one with the mysterious presence of this manor house and of like that lake. Because that lake is like it's not it wasn't like a dirty or a barren lake. It's like covered in like these like little like aquatic plants and there's these lush trees around it. And Solomon kind of just becomes one with this greater occult mystery that he wanted to solve in the first place. Yeah, 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 I would, I would, I would totally agree. I think it's, 
I think the ending is uh, is is especially for him is actually very beautiful, and I like the I like the idea that you preserve mystery. That point yeah. about kind of positive vengeance, I think, is really uh, is really striking. I like that a lot. That's a really interesting way of putting it. And this idea that through negation, through through the kind of refusal of that logic of because this was done to me, I will do it to you. You mm-hmm. can you can open the possibility of a world beyond the kind of tragedy of pain that is our shared human condition um, yes. is, I think, both a deeply religious point and a uh, a deeply leftist point because uh, it is a kind of excessiveness. There is something within that which uh, doesn't, is not kind of quantifiable as a kind of boundlessness to it. So uh that's me trying to sort of bring together these two things in my head and I don't know how well it worked. I, I uh, think you did a good job. Yes. Final thoughts? Final thoughts before we before we wrap this up? Um, I would like to personally request that everyone who listens to this podcast watch this movie, which we have now ruined for you. <laughs> um, I can't do any more to tell people about this movie unless I get like a skywriter. You know, I've done oh, yeah. my best. Um, but uh, I would encourage, uh, especially people of faith, to to watch this and sit with it a little bit, and yeah. just see, you know, what it what it does. I'm currently uh, looking for a spiritual director, uh, which is like a concierge, you know, type uh, pastor which you work with, you know, on your spiritual formation, you know, things in your life that you should not be doing, um, attempting to be a better apprentice to Christ. Um, and, uh, I, I strongly suspect that I will make them watch this movie so that we can talk about it (laughs) in the context of faith. I think that would be support this plan. (laughs) I think that would be, I think, uh, horror as spiritual development, I think, goes together really, really well. Um, ten out of ten, agree. Ash, any any final thoughts? Uh, my my one my one last thought. One one of one of the scenes that I, I felt was just like that 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 really shocked me and kind of like 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 one of those reactions where you just move to emotions so quickly and so unexpectedly is one of the final sequences where Sophia is uh, driving out of uh, the. Oh. The, the manor house and you know we, we we got the scene previously where she abandoned the ritual broke the circle and she's uh, kind of walking on the highway and there's no one and it's barren and she just mm-hmm. eventually circles back to the house but like this this red car just zips past her and and, and she and she's just v- visibly shaken by it oh, to no, see her eyes close yeah yeah oh he's beautiful fantastic beautiful and they could have you know there are a variety of things that could have worked prior to that is the final scene the final shot but i'm so desperately pleased that that's the one that's the one he decided to go for oh yeah because it's also it's her re-entering the world of humans Mm -hmm. yeah you know like she has been humans have been her enemy since her tragedy we see how brusque she is with her sister you know, how she sees that old woman by the car, you know, yeah, and, uh, you know, thinks of her as a demon and that utter relief at being back in the flawed, fucked up world 
of other human beings is is very beautiful. Uh, and I think I think that is that is a great sort of cap to talking about this this wonderful film. And yes. um, finally, I have I have just I have just two two questions uh, for you, Nicole. Firstly. Uh, as we ask all of our guests, uh, we ask for sort of recommendations of the spooky things that they enjoy. Uh, you're someone who uh, watches a lot of horror movies. So have you got any <laughs> horror movie recommendations? And secondly, have you got anything that we can plug? <laughs> okay. Um, fantastic. Okay. Well, uh, first off, um, uh, as opposed to horror movies, I've been really uh, doing a lot of horror novels. Great. Ooh, nice. Um, uh, which has been fantastic because I don't know why I thought this. There's no reason for this to be the case. But because I read all of the Stephen King novels when I was seven or whatever, and then in the years following the others, um, I don't know why I somehow until like last year assumed that only Stephen King and Dean Koontz like, wrote horror novels. And then suddenly realizing that there's this universe of breathtaking breathtaking horror novels out there, which I have just now been, you know, gobbling up with uh, great verve. Um, my number one recommendation, as always, is uh, The House Next Door by uh, Anne River Sidden, um, mm. or Anne River Siddons. I don't remember which, but it's called The House Next Door, and it is, uh, she's a very, very prolific Southern author who has written something like 30 books about just like, you know, random upper middle class families in Georgia. Um, and uh, she uh, wrote one horror novel. Just and, one. And that's, and, that's, and that's the one and, you, we should check out. Yes. But it's just amazing to me that you could write 35 novels and then one of them is a completely perfect horror novel. Um, and then not do another one. Uh, my other horror novel recommendation, they're both by women, interestingly, is Sarah Grand's Come Closer, mm. which is a very short horror novel and um, utterly fantastic. Uh, I will have to send you my, uh, some recommendations because after having this conversation, I can think of so many things which I know you'll enjoy. <laughs> so I will, I will have to send you uh, books to, to, to read and enjoy. Um, but what can we plug for you? What can we encourage people to check out? Sure. Um, uh, well, I, people with kids uh, or people who are just interested in the idea of kids should definitely <laughs> read my Children uh, conceptually. <laughs> but I think everyone should subscribe to my newsletter. Uh, which Nicole. is fantastic. Dot subsec, thank you, dot com. I do not feel any compulsion whatsoever to purchase the uh, fancy version. Um, you will get five free days of content um, and just do that. I, Substack probably does not love me saying that as much as I do. <laughs> so, uh, by all means, if you want to spend like $50 a year to get the extra stuff, do so. But you'll get plenty of me if you just sign up for the free version. Uh, brilliant. Well, uh, thank you. Thank you so, so much for coming on. This has been this has been really fun and yeah, this really was amazing. interesting. Um, oh, I've had the greatest time. I have enjoyed it so much. <laughs> We're flattered.
Thanks for tuning in, creeps and comrades. And remember, stay, stay spooky. spooky.